The following audio is from Shiloh Presbyterian Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. More information about Shiloh Presbyterian Church is available at shilohopc.org. Turn your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 8. Page 813 if you're using the Pew Bibles this morning. Matthew chapter 8, we'll be looking at verses 18 to the, the end of the chapter. Matthew chapter 18, chapter 8, verses 18 and through 34. So let's worship the Lord by listening very carefully this, to this, the public reading of his word. Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, for we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this that even winds and sea obey him? And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them. And the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region." Amen. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Let's pray and ask his blessing upon us. Indeed, we do ask you to come now. Gracious Father, come to us, your people. Come and bless us as we look to your word. By the power of the Holy Spirit, sent from heaven by the risen and exalted Christ, come, we pray, and be our helper. Guide us into all of your truth and grant us grace that we might believe and that we might obey every word which you would teach us this morning. We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, what sort of man is this? Just ponder those words. Think about that question. I chose that as my sermon title. It's right there in the the center of our text, verse 27. But perhaps in order to help you think about the question, put it in its context. Use your imagination this morning and imagine if you were there asking the question, there in the boat with the disciples. Just imagine it. You've, You've just come within an inch of death, right? The storm was so great. It was... It was going to destroy everything. Water was pouring into the boat. 
humanly speaking, there was no hope whatsoever. You and all of the other disciples, you were all going to perish. But what changed it? Well, this, this man, just by his word, he simply rebuked the storm and suddenly it stopped and there was a great calm. And so really you were, you were left there with the other disciples marveling as you were asking that question, what sort of man is this that even winds and sea obey him? And similar to the other gospels, Matthew's account of the episode ends with that question. But the point here is not simply to ask the question. Really, the story serves to answer that question, right? That, that, that's the point not only of the story, not just this section of the gospel. Really, that's, that's the purpose of Matthew's gospel, to answer that question. What sort of man is this? Well, we know the answer. He is the God-man. He's the Messiah. He's the Christ. He's the son of Abraham. He's the son of David. Matthew's gospel answers that question, and, and surely that's an appropriate question then for us to ponder as we consider the entire text before us this morning, you can see that we're, we're combining three sections, each of which really could have been preached as its own separate sermon. But as we consider them together, I want to suggest four things this morning that we can say in answer to that question, what sort of man is this? And then part of the answer I'm suggesting this morning flows out of the, the meaning of that rich term we see for the first time in verse 20, that term, son of man. What sort of man is this? He is the son of man. We'll speak more about that. But my sermon proposition, our message this morning is this. He is the one who is all and the one who gave up all in order to conquer all and the one who then rightly demands all. I pray that he is all that to you this morning, dear Christian. May he become so more and more as we consider the message before us. Consider that first point then. He, Christ Jesus, he is the one who is all. I'm trying to sound a bit poetic in my my words this morning, but the point here is to say that, that, that he is God. He is the one whom the scriptures describe as the one who is all in all. That is to say, he's, he's the very one who is supreme over everything. Jesus is the Son of God, and he is God the Son. And I think that's a truth that sounds forth throughout this text this morning. I think we can see the evidence of the deity of Christ, even the way in which the text begins with that radical call of discipleship. What sort of man could demand such unqualified, unquestioning, unrivaled devotion and loyalty? No man ever could, right? This must be the God-man. But leaving that first section for now, consider how clearly we see the deity of Christ in the second and even in the third sections. But just think about that, that storm-calming miracle and the disciples, they'd, they'd already witnessed plenty of miracles, hadn't they? They'd seen him drive out demons. They'd seen him healing diseases, healing many, many, as we saw last week, verse 16. But here it seems that, that the marveling reaches uh, something of a new level, as now they're witnessing even his power over the, 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 the creation, even over the wind and the sea, even the wind and sea obey him. What does this teach us? about what sort of man is this Jesus. Well, I think it teaches us that he is indeed the creator. He is the one who is the ruler of, the na- of all nature as we sing. He's the Lord whom the psalmist 
had praised in Psalm 65, verse 7, the one who, who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves. Or Psalm 89, verse 9, you rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. Or Psalm 3, verse 4, mightier than the waves of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. Who is this Jesus? This is the very God who once spoke to Job. Remember when Job was challenging God and basically demanding an answer and Job God finally spoke to Job in chapter 38 and said in so many words, who, who, who will, you, will you question me? Who are you to question me? I am the one, he described himself, the one who prescribed limits for the sea. I'm the, I'm the one who said to the sea, thus far shall you come and no farther, and here, here shall your proud waves be stayed. So I think this, this Jesus is that God, master, Lord of all creation, the wind and the waves. They are, they are but his servants. They are sub- subject to him. And so here he, he rightly, properly asserted his authority over them. We might, might think of this as almost like a, a father who commands respect, right? And when his children become unruly and begin to misbehave, all he has to do is stand up, give them that stern look, that look you're perhaps used to young children, right? That look that says, knock it off. If you know what's good for you, you better stop. Stop now. And the storm of, of discord, disorderly conduct, it's calmed quickly, isn't it? Well, that's kind of like what happens in the, in the text this morning. Matthew doesn't even give us the precise words. All it says, all it says is that he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. One rebuke, and there was compliance, there was obedience. I suppose one appropriate word of application this morning for us would be this. Beloved, do you respond that way when you receive a word of rebuke from the Lord? When when you're carrying on, misbehaving, unruly, acting contrary to his word, how do you respond when he comes to you with a simple rebuke? Uh, Sometimes like Job, we we simply need to hear the words say, stop it, right? You're being disobedient. Stop that. And we need to learn to respond well to that. What, what, what sort of man is this Jesus to you when you receive from him a word of reproof? Maybe it comes from the preached word. Maybe it comes from your own Bible reading. Maybe it comes from a parent or a husband or a wife, another brother or sister in Christ. Beloved, this, this morning, if... If, if even the wind and even the waves obeyed his voice, what about you and me? What about us, we who are his beloved children and we who are called to be his disciples in Christ Jesus, disciples of Jesus? This Jesus is God the Son. And by the way, it's going to be proven again when he later walks on the water and again he calms a storm. We'll see that in chapter 14. And there the disciples would be left worshiping him, marveling and worshiping and saying, indeed, truly you are the Son of God. But his sonship, his status at the Son of God, we see it even in our text, don't we? We see it more explicitly down in in verse 29 where ironically it's It's the demons who profess it to be true, right? The demons who seem to be grasping what the the disciples themselves are a bit more slow in coming to understand. Oh, son of God, they call him. Our Lord's deity is, is proven, I think, yes, by their words, but also by their submission to his command in verse 32. Just one word, one word, go. 
sends them fleeing into the pigs. We'll say more about that, but what power, what authority. Marvel at it. Truly, this is the Son of God, God the Son. And that then makes it so amazing what we can say for our next point. The one who is all gave up all. A few weeks back, we were downtown doing evangelism, and a man came up to me. He was interested in what we were there doing, interested in what was our message, and we began to talk, and he challenged my claim that Jesus was God. I'm pretty sure he was a Jehovah's Witness, but I couldn't get him to admit that. I was willing to tell him I was a Presbyterian. I don't know why I wanted to keep that hidden. But he said, if Jesus is God, then why does the Bible call him the firstborn of all creations? Colossians 1.15. If you ever are challenged that way with regards to the deity of Christ, there's such a simple answer to give. I simply looked at him and said, I said, yes, Jesus is God, but I did not say that Jesus is only God, the wonder of the incarnation. And this is part of the message of the gospel, is that God became true man, the creator became the creature, and indeed, in his true flesh and bones, bodily resurrection, he did become the firstborn. He became the, became the beginning of that new creation which God is bringing to us. And yes, he is preeminent. He is the firstborn, preeminent among it all. But if God, who is all, became true man, then that means that, that he gave up all, gave up all indeed. Doesn't the Bible say that he, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, true man? True man, not one who went about living in luxury, right? Just think about those words up in verse 20. Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Again, note that, that, that Matthew, this is Matthew's first use of that term, Son of Man, and, and it's in this context here where it speaks of, uh, of his lowly status, his, his suffering, his life, of deprivation, that that might sound surprising with regards to that term son of man, because when we see it in the Old Testament, Daniel 7 being the primary background for the term, there the son of man is not used to focus on his suffering, and not the suffering of the Messiah, but the glory of the Messiah, his heavenly glory. He is this, this one who comes with the heavenly clouds. He is one who is, has conquered, one who is victorious, which we'll get to in our next point, but he's this, this one who is, is a great king. He is given dominion and glory. He's the one given that kingdom which shall never come to an end. And Jesus does use the term son of man that way in the gospel. We'll certainly see that. But here, here he uses it with reference to, to his earthly suffering, the earthly suffering which precedes the glory of the Messiah, which precedes that, that heavenly glory, suffering, Suffering indeed. We see that in the call to discipleship, don't we? In verse 18, we see that, that, that Jesus and his disciples, they were, they were going over to the other side. They were crossing the lake over to the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. They were going into foreign territory. It would not be so easy for them to find friendly lodging. So with regards to their sleeping arrangement, arrangements, they might indeed at times find themselves in circumstances where they'd be even worse off than the, the foxes in their holes and the birds in their nests. 
But we know that, that, that often Jesus and his disciples did enjoy perfectly adequate accommodation. And so I think, yes, the more important point that needs to be made here is that, that he left heavenly glory. He left, yes, he left, and he came to dwell in this, this foreign place, this world, which was not his home. Eternal God became man. He dwelt among us. He dwelt among us. He dwelt among us in a world where men discounted the cost of discipleship because they discounted the value of him. They didn't perceive the value of all that that he had given up to come and to be our Messiah. He came and he endured the frustration of the the sinful unbelief of disciples who who panicked in the boat, even after seeing all of the great miracles that he had done, all the displays of his power, as well as the evidence of his compassionate heart, as we saw last time. How sad, how sad it was, and yet at the same time, how wonderfully this storm-calming event also illustrates the true humanity of Jesus right there together with his true deity. Just think about it. One minute he's sleeping, and the very next minute, what's he doing? Commanding the waves and the wind, calming the storm. That is staggering, isn't it? Because God does not sleep, and men don't give commands to waves and wind. But here God had become true man, true man, true man, even a man who could become tired and worn out, one who who exhausted his strength fulfilling the will of the Father. At times he had to sleep wherever and whenever he could. I'm guessing that 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 boat perhaps was indeed a bit less comfortable, even less comfortable than foxes sleeping in holes and birds sleeping in their nests, certainly being tossed about as he was by the storm. And yes, as we see in the third section then, we see that he he was willing, yes, to venture even into the most hostile regions Places inhabited by fierce men, possessed by demons, dwelling among tombs. And yes, near the filthy, unclean pigs. Proof that he'd he'd ventured deep into Gentile territory, right? He'd, He'd come to dwell. Come to dwell in this fierce world of satanic oppression, defilement, and death. What sort of man was this? Yes, he was the one who was all, but who had given up all indeed. But he had done so for what purpose? Our third point. He'd done so in order to come and conquer all. Yes, he suffered, but yes, he was the Son of Man, the conquering Messiah. Indeed, by his suffering, by his righteous suffering, obedient, by his his perfect submission to the will of the Father. He's the one who would come to conquer all of the powers of hell. The demons knew that, didn't they? They can't but confess it in verse 29. Have you come here to torment us, they cried. Have you come here to torment us before the time they understood? They understood that God had appointed that, that time where they would at last be destroyed. And isn't it fascinating to note this? That, that, that perhaps they, they, they had some sense, we, we don't know how much the demons understood as they were speaking to Jesus through the lips of those poor souls whom they'd possessed. Perhaps they had some sense that, that his very incarnate presence, that his humble presence, the evidence that he was carrying out the work of the Father, that, that somehow this was it, the plan of God was being executed and, carrying, carrying it and being carried out 
The very presence of Jesus, this meant this was the beginning of the end for them. It is interesting. This is the only time in Matthew that we read of of the demons speaking to Jesus. We did see earlier in the gospel that the devil himself, the prince of demons, he spoke to Jesus, didn't he, back in chapter 4 in the wilderness temptation. But ironically, you may recall there, the devil challenged his status as the son of God. Most demanding proof, if you're really the son of God, prove it, right? But here we see that the demons themselves must confess that very truth with which the devil challenged. They knew this Jesus is the son of God and the one who as the son of God had come to destroy them. Of course, we we know that it, it would in fact be by the authority given him upon the completion of his work, his obedience, his obedience unto death, that would result in his resurrection glory. And so really this text speaks not only, not only to his authority as God, eternal God, the Son, it also speaks to the authority that would become his even as man, that, that earned, that merited lordship of the Christ. What sort of man is this? He is the one who would defeat all of his and our enemies at the cross. And God would would raise him from the dead. God would make him Lord and King. And with that authority, then he would at last come and he would destroy them. They would be destroyed forever. And friends, we have such wonderful signs of that even in our text, don't we? I think think it's a sign of that again, even that that miracle of the, the, uh, the sea being calm, Psalm 65 Verse 7, I already mentioned, but, but that shows us that the, the raging sea, the storm, it really is something of a symbol of, of, of the rebellion of, of mankind, the tumult of the peoples, Psalm 65, verse 7 says. It's the image of that Psalm 2 imagery of the nations raging. Why do the nations rage in rebellion against God? See, brothers and sisters, a day will come when the raging will be no more. Christ will come. He will come again and he will put an end to all of it, all of the evil. And I think we see that as well in what happened in verse 32 to the demons and their pigs. Just stop and imagine what that must have been like. Talk about power. Verse 28 tells us that that these two men were so fierce, no one could even pass that way. How scary. We know from the other gospels that there there were many, many demons Involved here, but clearly this was enough power to affect an entire herd of pigs. But infinitely greater is the power of Christ. And again, they recognized it, didn't they? They were begging, begging permission. If you cast us out, send us away, send us into the pigs. I doubt that what ended up happening to those pigs is what the demons had in mind, but. But with one simple word, again, they were gone. The whole herd, we read, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. If you can just imagine, imagine what kind of scene that must have been. Pigs were destroyed. For now, the the demons were left to look for a new home. But what a marvelous sign of that power, that power which will one day be displayed when indeed Christ returns from heaven in all of his glory. He comes as the everlasting king of glory, and he comes and he destroys all of his enemies, all his and our enemies. 
the demons, the devil himself, all his angels, all those who have aligned themselves with him, all will be thrown into the lake, into the lake of fire, to torment no more. Not just the filthy pigs, but but all that is defiled and unclean, every detestable thing, even sin and death itself, it will be no more. What sort of man is this? This is the one who, because he is all, and because he gave all, will at last come and conquer all. He will at last have conquered all. And as it was for the disciples in the boat, so it is for us, all who believe this morning. That will be a great, great saving event, right? We will be delivered. We will be delivered out of this present darkness and delivered into his kingdom of light and glory. We're promised a new world, a new heavens and a new earth wherein dwells perfect righteousness, perfect peace, perfect calm. We'll be in the presence of Christ. Yes, forever to marvel at him, forever to marvel and worship, to worship this one, the one who is all, the one who gave up all, the one who conquered all for us. What sort of man? What sort of man is he for you this morning? Well, I suppose the answer to that question lies in in the question of what you are willing to give up in order to own him, to possess him, to be his disciple. That brings us to our last point this morning. He is the one who rightly demands all. This brings us to that that first section once more, verses 18 through 22. And and note here that we, we read about these two men. We're told that one is a scribe, verse 19. That's, that's interesting because most teachers of the law, the scribes, most responded neg- negatively to Jesus. This is one of the few exceptions. Now, the fact that the other man is called another of the disciples, verse 21, that, that tells us that both of these men seem to be disciples in some sense. They were, the, they were part of the larger group of those who accepted the teaching of Jesus, saw themselves as those who were wanting to follow him as a true teacher. They were disciples in that sense. And at least the claim here is they, they want to take it to the next step. They want to go and actually follow him on his, his mission. They want to follow him and be with him and the other disciples. But in both cases, it seems that they've not, not properly assessed the cost involved in being a true Disciple. The scribe says, Teacher, I'll follow you wherever you go. Jesus knew what was in this man's heart, and I think the, the response of Jesus, which we've already considered, but quite telling, isn't it? Jesus, Jesus knew that this was a man who thought of discipleship as something easy, that he was not truly willing to bear the cost of following Christ as his true discipleship, not willing to endure the suffering connected to his discipleship. And I think it was similar with the second man, verse 21. In his case, we see that he he asks first to go and bury his father. What exactly does that mean? This is is something that's debated. Some have argued that that the man's father had probably not died yet. This language of of going and burying his father, it could, could speak to one's duty to remain and care for one's father until the day of his death. So this would have been something of, of a request to put off discipleship way into the future, right? Not a, not a very serious proposal for discipleship. On the other hand, if the man's father had died, well, that, 
that would seem to make more sense, but, but yet well, why then would Jesus fulfill, uh, forbid his fulfilling his duty to go and bury his father who had died? Truthfully, in either case, the words of Christ would have been quite shocking to hear, especially, I think, if the, father, the man's father had indeed already died. Just think about those words, especially those words, follow me and leave the dead the dead, to bury their own dead. Really? Is that, a, is that a good way to refer to those who would want to honor a parent, honor a father with a, a proper burial? Well, again, like the scribe of verse 19, I think this is one who was not rightly counting the value or counting the cost of discipleship because he's one who was not rightly perceiving the value of Christ and the kingdom which he had brought and the urgency, the greatness of the call, the need to enter in, to own him and enter into his kingdom by faith, no matter what the cost. So yes, in order to shock him, to shock him into seeing what he needed to see and what you and I need to see this morning, it was good, it was right to use such words, even if he used words which some would have regarded as offensive, even culturally insensitive, as some suggest. R.T. France puts it this way, and I think this is helpful. He says, the the cultural insensitivity of Jesus, Jesus' demand, underlines the radical newness and overriding importance of the message of the kingdom of heaven. Even the most basic of family ties must not be allowed to stand in its way. Compared with those who have found true life in the kingdom of heaven, those who remain outside it are the dead. And we don't know whether, whether the words of Jesus was able to shock these two men into a greater apprehension of his greatness and glory and therefore move them unto true discipleship. We're not intended to know that, are we? The issue is what kind of effect, what kind of impact will these words have on you and me this morning? What sort of man will this Jesus be to you and in your life as he calls you to follow him, the one who is all, the one who gave up all, the one who conquered all? Does not this Jesus Jesus rightly demand your all and my all this morning? Does he have such worth that you would follow him knowing that the the true path of discipleship is not a life of ease, is it? Is he worthy of you? Is he, did you value him? You, do you count him worthy enough to, to, to esteem him higher and of greater importance than any of your family uh, priorities, family ties? Will you surrender unto him your responsibility to be godly in your, in your family uh, duties and so forth? Will, will you trust his power? Will you trust in his goodness as the Lord of glory and thereby trust that he's in control of your life. He's in control even when it seems like things are out of control and it, it seems like you're being tossed about by the storm because of the various trials that you are experiencing. Will you nonetheless walk by faith? Will you trust in him? Don't miss the striking feature of Matthew's particular account of this event that, that here we read of Jesus dealing first with the sinful fear and unbelief of the disciples before then going and, and, and calming the storm. He does so with wonderful tenderness and compassion and love, but he, he gives them that word of repuf, re, uh, reproof, doesn't he? 
uh, on the path of discipleship, you should feel the, the urgent call to repent of those, those sinful anxieties which can dominate your life. He, the Lord calls us this morning to, to come to him and to cast upon him all our cares because he cares for us. He promises to care for us and he calls us then not to live by fear but to walk by faith. And to carry that faith boldly into the battle. Will you follow Christ even though you know that doing so will, involve, will, will mean involving yourself in serious spiritual warfare? The battle will not be easy. It will not be pleasant. It will not be comfortable. How remarkable the way our text concludes, verse 34. It's such a display of power. This, this great sign proving that the kingdom of God had, had intruded itself, had come into the country of the Gadarenes. And how did the people respond? Tragically, they wanted nothing to do with it, right? They begged Jesus to leave their region. See, apparently to them, Christ and the presence of his kingdom wasn't worth it. It wasn't worth the collateral damage, perhaps. They, they, they'd, they'd counted the cost of discipleship, and to them, it wasn't worth it. So it is in this world. There's so many who would rather just go living their lives ignorant of the the spiritual battle, ignoring the truth that they are part of that battle, right? That without Christ, they are on the losing side. And friends, so it is with you this morning. For any here, I'm thinking of any who perhaps have never come and trusted Christ. You've never You've never entered into the kingdom by faith, embracing him. You are not following him as his disciple. See, without him, you you are just like those men as they were possessed by demons in this text. If you've not embraced Christ in true repentance and faith, then you are yet aligned with the devil. You are a member of his kingdom. You are in bondage to him. You are serving him in a way that is so destructive to you, body and soul, and in the end, you are bound for judgment. And this morning, your only hope, your only hope is this man, Christ Jesus, the Savior. May God open up your eyes afresh, or open up your eyes this morning, if you've never believed in him, to see what he's revealed to be in this text, the God-man, the Messiah, the Savior, the one who came, and he bled and died as he suffered on the cross to save sinners just like you. And he does save. He saves all who come to him by faith. And he promises, believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And he will receive you unto himself and you will be one with him. So you will know his marvelous power. Power not only to forgive all of your sins, and we'll consider that next time, chapter 9 but power also to to live as his true disciples, to live as his disciples. It's that to which he calls us this morning. In union with him. Just just end on that note this morning. I think we can illustrate that by going back to the beginning, up in verse 20, where we read of that first would-be disciple, the scribe. Again, we don't know what became of that man, but consider our Lord's words to him when he, he made that offer to be his disciple. Notice that Jesus did not say, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, and neither will you have any place to lay your head. That may be true, 
Jesus certainly often did speak to what the lives of his disciples would be like, but notice that here the the focus is all on him, Christ himself. His was the life of perfect, total self-sacrifice. He's the one who had fulfilled the will of the Lord. And again, my point is not that we don't have to follow his example on the path of discipleship. Yes, of course, we certainly do. But this should remind us Remind us that it's all out of him. It's that the power to do so comes wholly from Christ. The life of true discipleship is a life that flows out of union with him. It's him. It's his spirit which conforms us unto his image, the likeness of him. The likeness of him who is all and who gave all and who conquered all indeed. Conquered all, even, even subduing us unto himself as we learn of his, his execution of his offices, uh, office of the king in our catechism. He subdues us unto himself by his power. He's the one who makes us to be holy and completely his. That is wonderful power, and that is wonderful grace. Dear Christian, let that encourage you. Let that empower you onto the, to the, the path of true discipleship following Christ, by his almighty power, turn then and offer unto him your all. Let's pray. Lord, we pray this morning that you would help us to do that, for that is our desire. Indeed, in view of of your wonderful mercy and truth, your grace revealed to us again this morning in your word, how could we respond any other way? but to come and to offer our, even our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable. Father, this is good and reasonable. Help us so to serve you acceptably. We pray then, O Lord God, by the, the same power revealed when, when our Lord calmed the storm and cast out the demons, that you would work powerfully using your word in the lives of all who have heard it this morning. We do pray that you would grant salvation to any here who do not know you and that you would further sanctify us your people. Grant that we would take up our crosses and that we would follow our Savior indeed on the true path of discipleship. We ask for all of these things in his name. Amen.